There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to the show. I'm Wanda Wallace, and today we have a special treat as always. Occasionally, I have the privilege of talking with a leader about his or her experiences of leading. They're what they did, how they did it, where they did it, particularly when we get to talk about transitions to new, unfamiliar roles. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the experiences of one particular leader in going into new territory, what he's done to be successful in that role, and his advice about influence and politics. So with me today is Mark Milders. Mark is officially the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria for ING Bank based in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, Before that, he did a role as head of corporate clients for the Eastern European and CIS states. And before that, he did leverage finance and sponsor coverage for ING in Amsterdam. And then he held a variety of roles in acquisition and finance. That's in corporate finance. That's what his official biography looks like. Unofficially, though, let me tell you a little bit of the backstory because it makes for a much more interesting tale. Mark is actually born in the U.S. and moved around the world with his father's work, ended up in Holland, and having too much fun, decided not to go immediately to university, did some other things in the meantime, and eventually decided that he'd get around to going to university. And at Rotterdam, he studied international tax law. Now, tax law is a little bit of a ways away from the coverage work that he's doing today, and that's the interesting part of the experience. So he was actually at an accounting firm for a while, and then he moved into a bank doing acquisition finance, basically with entrepreneurs who were trying to do management buyouts private equity before private equity was called really what it was. And then out of the blue, he gets a question to move to a completely new area. And that's the thing that's the most interesting. So Mark, multiple shifts in your career and welcome to the show, by the way. Hi, thank you very much, Wanda. And hi to everyone listening. All right. So out of, yeah, go ahead. No, lead. Thank you for that summary, and that was indeed uh, the uh, the the biggest leap. Yeah, to this. So you're here. You have been doing acquisition finance, management buyouts, and now somebody calls you and says, "Would you like to go to client coverage in Central and Eastern Europe?" Europe. So what happened? Tell me. Tell us what happened at that point. What did you do? Did you say yes? Did you say no? What happened? Well, here goes. It's it's probably one of the one of the more difficult questions. It's uh, it isn't outright an offer, but you get the question: Would you like to be considered? Which, uh, well, there's not really a no to that. You, you don't know exactly what it is. At least I didn't. And um, and it's a, I did. I asked, "What is it?" And he said, "Well, it's what uh, uh, it's what uh, this and this uh, person that also I knew is doing in Holland, but then you have to do it in 13 countries. 
And I went, okay, uh, do I have time to think about it? And then you get this next answer. So I went, yeah, you've got uh, 24 hours. Um, I was on my way home, I'm in the car, uh, drove home, uh, thinking about nothing else, of course, at that moment. Knowing nothing about Central Eastern Europe, except for one time an unscheduled landing somewhere in Poland, coming back from uh, Norway. Um, so didn't really see that coming, didn't believe I had the qualifications, and I actually, an hour after coming home, I called him back and said, yes, I would like to be considered. And then you get into a process and you have interviews, um, and then uh, I got the job. And then it was, okay, what do I do now? <laughs> I love it. Okay, now what do I do now? All right, so go back to that very beginning where this person is asking you, would you like to be considered? Why do you think the person was asking you when you fundamentally don't know anything about the market, you don't really know about the job, and by your own words, you don't think you're qualified? Um why he asked the question, I did ask him that, and he said, um, one was, uh, basically his answer was, well, you need to develop in another direction. I have been in the leverage finance business for 11 years, both the highs and the lows, uh, the crisis after 2007. So this was when I got the question, it was uh, in 2010. And um, that was it it was he said you know you can do that uh, we have the client part i had already in sponsor coverage i uh, had experience with that and he basically said you go and do that and uh, uh get a plane get on the plane and go meet your teams <laughs> i love that get on the plane and go meet your team okay so you didn't see it coming you weren't sure you had the qualifications you're driving home you're taking an hour to think about it why would you say yes i was at a point after 11 years and uh, as i said both the highs and the lows uh leverage finance during the crisis i stayed on i also wanted to know uh, what it was like um to basically when things are not going so swell, um, how do you manage when markets are rough and there's not so much deals and, and you're basically also faced with transactions in trouble and we went through that. And the newness, the, the, the multiple cultures, the countries, and I, I knew it was an important region for the bank as well. And mm-hmm. I, I, it was like a challenge which... I really wanted to jump at. Okay. So the curiosity both plus the challenge plus it's time for something new. Yeah. Okay. One of my clients has said that in your career, it helps if you're on a fast rising elevator, meaning it helps if you're in an area that's really important. So choosing to take this job puts you in a market that is really important for the bank and it's going to be there early as opposed to be there late to the party. Okay, so you go through the interview process. How did you get yourself prepared for this? Because, you know, how do you get your confidence up? What, did you have people supporting you along the way? Or did you just sort of say, okay, this is it. I am what I am. I know what I know. Um, the latter, actually. Uh, the, the interview process was went pretty fast, and uh, the transition into the role was also quite fast. Uh, I don't think there was more than four weeks between it. Wow. Um, said goodbye to my old team and then um, 
first thing about the support was I had an office in Amsterdam because the uh, regional head office was based in Amsterdam, uh, but uh, I had a secretary there and a business manager I support. And then, as I said, in the 13 countries, the teams really covering ING's clients and all these uh, where, well, the nearest one was probably Prague, which is not very near. Right. It's like uh, 1,400 kilometers and, um, or a thousand miles and um, that was it so basically the first contact they had with me was uh, probably the announcement <laughs> in the intranet that I was going to do the role and then a friendly email from, my, from me saying I was looking forward to meet everyone and come by great did you get uh, resistance from the team were they kind of hesitant who is this guy and why are we going to be led by him I'm sure they all thought that um not knowing me, um, as I said, I'd not been in the region. Um, and basically what I did is I asked every country or every, uh, every one of my heads of clients in different countries to please send me a book on their country so I could, learn, so I could read up and understand uh, basically the culture and where they were coming from. And that was fantastic. Um, and everybody, the books kept coming in by, by, by the post, which was great for two things. One, I knew I was going to be on a plane a lot. And I really uh, have a lot of value in trying to understand what, how the DNA of people, cultural DNA of people has uh, developed and understanding their country and, and especially Central Eastern Europe with such a rich culture and rich history which is usually seen as a block, uh, uh, probably because of the history of it. It was actually called uh, the East Block, uh, the, and the, the, the Warsaw Pact was the one that was unifying it. But if you, if you look at the individual histories, there's such individual and rich histories that uh, that really helped me prepare uh, mm-hmm. for the trips, and you get different responses. You get... Uh, you get one very, very big, large book uh, from uh, from Poland, which has a very significant history, which also explains uh, the people and and uh, how that nation has developed. And then the Russians send you six, um, <laughs> and that's uh, that's also fitting because it is a very complex history and um, a complex culture. Um, okay. That's what I did, and then then it was in actually getting on a plane and meeting those people. And of course, there were people uh, having a look and thinking, "Who is this?" And I was 37 at the time, uh, and you've got this young face popping into the office, and they all go, "Huh?" And um, yeah, you have to work at it. And, and in some countries, the warmth and the welcoming was immediate. Um, also, having studied a little bit the corporate history which they had gone through. Um, then you have an, then you have a good idea of uh, how they have been uh, linked to Amsterdam or to the head office and how that has been done and basically opening up and talking to the, to talking to them. Okay. And how about your own confidence? Were there moments when you wondered what the heck have I gotten myself into or not? Oh good. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> I had, of course, in the jobs previously, I had the team right in, sitting right in front of me. I sat on the same floor. I could see them. And now you have people 
from sitting far away, um, different countries, different, each country with its different challenges. Um, and how do you make a team out of that? How do you connect the, those dots? How do you make sure that they're not uh, operating only in a single, uh, in their own little markets? Or how do you make sure that there's something that they that unites them uh, and not just uh, the corporation where they're working for, but how do you get them to um, work on the the way you would like and how you believe that uh, people should be uh, covering clients and they've been used to different things. So I had doubts all the time. All right. Now, I want to talk about how you get this team coming together and connecting the dots and uniting them. But let me stay focused for a moment on this whole notion of confidence. So in those moments when you're saying, I doubt whether I know what I'm doing, whether out loud or just privately to yourself, what do you do? Did you seek out counsel? Did you have a mentor or somebody you went to? How did you get through that? Um, I've been blessed all through my career with uh, with people that have uh, lovingly and freely given me advice. And yes, I reached out to them. Um, and um, some some of the the good advice is just just you know, I told them about my preparation, and they they told me just go there and listen. And uh, I also met with a guy who had done the job previously. I made okay. the first initial tour with my predecessor. Um, okay. and also got some valuable tips from both of them. Okay. Um, and then in the end, it's really relying on the gut, um, also on the basic principle that all those people are there and working and want to be successful, um, and reaching out. Basically, what I did was also no hidden agenda, uh, basically also be quite open and sincere up front about my shortcomings, about not knowing their markets, not knowing their clients yet, um, things like that, um, which helped them in opening up and sharing info, which then strengthened my confidence as well. <laughs> and then the second time or the third time that you land in that country and then you are greeted uh, in such a different way, um, and then you build from that. Right. I talk to lots of people who worry about admitting the vulnerabilities, admitting what you don't know. Not so much that they want to fake it, that they do know something they don't know, but rather that they don't want to say out loud, I don't really know anything about your country, your culture, your clients. Afraid that that will make them look too weak in the eyes of the team. But you have the opposite view. Yes, very, very, very so much so. I think uh, I think you completely destroy your credibility if you would try to fake that or try to play it. Um, there's no no person in the world can make a hundred percent from from twenty percent content can make a hundred percent if he doesn't know the rest. I think uh, the, most people, if not all. If you ask and if you're open about that, you want uh, you want their help, they will freely give it. It's almost a human condition. If you're if you're friendly, uh, if you're asked friendly for for assistance, and you say, "Listen, this and this, I don't know," most mm-hmm. people will help you. Yeah. 
it's true, there's some fabulous research on this on the givers and takers, and that fundamentally we all want to do that. We like to give more than we realize yeah. in this one. Um, now, presumably, you have to have a way to add value to the team. You have to have something that you're bringing to them that they're getting benefit out of working with you. What did that turn out to be? What was your value add? Um, what I hope they would answer to that question is that I gave them uh, the courage and the fun uh, in their jobs again, and also the empowerment to to go out. That I believe that they they were adults and professionals, and and basically that it's not need to check everything in with the boss. Which, of course, if you if you think back about the history of that region, um, for a very very long time. Some of them personally, but certainly their parents lived, of course, in an era where own initiative was not exactly applauded, right. if not uh, dangerous. And I basically made them believe again that there was a region where we could grow. Of course, this was in the middle of the crisis, and the crisis hit right. after a little bit later um, than than in Western Europe. Uh, there was a delay oh, wow. factor in there because of the economy, and but severely. But this is this is also a cult. These are also cultures, and I think, I think I can say it's almost across all those countries because you, you can't really treat it as one region. It's very different countries. Right. But one thing unites them: they really know how to roll up their sleeves when they're going to get stuff. I used to say, okay. if I could, if I could get fifteen people, fifty percent of those people into back into. The Netherlands, with that energy and that uh, pure, let's get going mentality, we would have uh, we be that we would have been out of the crisis a lot quicker in Western Europe. Yeah, yeah. And that's fascinating. So I gave them that, the empowerment, and I think um, the other one is that um, I had their backs, and that is something which they uh, they found out, of course, over time. And uh, they have the freedom to pursue their own visions and strategies for their markets, which they obviously knew better than I did. Right. Yeah, and presumably the connection into headquarters, which is part of how it is that you have their backs, so that you cover them well um, at that office. Okay? Yeah. Yeah, and then you put in the time and the energy to to seek to understand what what makes them tick, what makes our country tick, what makes their clients tick, and uh, and you fight for their proposals to get okay. them approved or to 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 make it easier for them to do their business. Okay, great, and you fight for their proposals. I love that one. Fabulous. I get a sense of that there would have been a bit of a rocky start for some people. You said some opened up really pretty quickly and it was a fairly warm, engaging, welcoming place very quickly and that others you have to work a little harder on. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about this tactic of how do you actually build this team into a team that's doing more than just individual efforts. So they're really connecting the dots. And how do you tackle the people that really are against, not against you, but not quite there at the very beginning. So with me today is Mark Milders. Mark is currently the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria. He's come across, up through the ranks first as um 
independently working and then as an international tax lawyer and then as um, finance, acquisition finance, and then finally now doing client coverage with ING. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace, Every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Mark Milders. Mark is currently the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria for ING Bank. Um, Mark has had a long history of doing a variety of things, starting out as an international lawyer, tax lawyer, and then moving into various forms of finance. And we've been talking about a particular transition when he goes from doing acquisition finance with entrepreneurial firms a senior manager says to him, out of the blue, would you like to be considered for a role in a country you've 13 countries you've never been to, and in a job you don't really know what it is, doing client coverage. Mark said, can I have time to think about it? And the guy says, yes, you get 24 hours. And an hour later, he calls back and says, yes, I'll do it. And four weeks later, he's in the job. So now here we have a team that he's taking over from who is some of them a lot older, 13 countries that he knows nothing about, some of whom are a little suspicious of him and some of whom are welcoming him, ready to embrace. Mark says the thing that he does is he asks every country to send him a book about the country and the culture so that while he's traveling on the plane, he can get a sense of the DNA and understand how the country works. And then it's a matter of saying, here's what I know, here's what I don't know, and I'm going to help you because I'm going to bring 
your, I'm going to have your backs and give you some freedom to pursue things, and I'll help you fight your proposals back at headquarters, among a variety of other things. Mark also says that when you show interest, some countries, some people are immediately welcoming and quite warm. Others are a little slower. So I want to focus for a minute on the team members that are a bit more resisting your authority or resisting you as the leader. Pick out one of those. You don't have to name anybody, but how did you deal with it? Um, it was difficult, um, especially what made it even more difficult is that um, if, you're, if you're managing from a distance and communicating by phone or email and you're in the country, um, well, regular, but every, every other couple of months, it's not difficult for people to be to hold out and be nice for a day to Mark Milders when mm-hmm. he lands. I mean, that's not, uh, that's, you know, you, 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 you notice it, um, body language sometimes and things like that. And what I've always felt that was working for me the best is to actually single those guys out or, or, or ladies. Frankly, diversity in Central Eastern Europe is not a problem. I think 75% of my team was female. Um, but um, we're basically sitting down and actually let them shine. So if there was uh, not taking it away from them, um, if there was something to do, singling them out and actually giving them... Um, more freedom or a uh, special or recognition and, and, and that way pulling them a little bit closer so you have a more personal interaction and sitting them on one-on-one. Um, that, help, that works, not always. I mean, uh, let's be fair. Uh, in, in a business, uh, you can't be friends with everybody, and I'm pretty sure uh, that not everybody like me. And uh, that may have been a problem uh, in the past, but uh, it's also something that uh, I'm, I'm perfectly comfortable with as long as people remain professional. And if they're not, we have a different talk. Okay. All right. So the te- I think there's a lot of tendency for people when you have somebody who's resisting to try to dampen them down. You know, to try to call them up or show them power. And you did the exact opposite. Let's find a way to let you shine, to give you a bit more freedom, to give you a bit more recognition. And it's that positive reinforcement that draws them closer to you. Yeah. I think you know, if you put them down, you're confirming their belief all about you, uh, whatever uh-huh. that belief is. I think uh, beliefs are a very powerful thing. You, you can see a person. Uh, but that's the tip of the iceberg. What he is and how that person acts is is is, is fa- founded on the belief structure that is actually not visible. Uh, it can be his past, his upbringing, his culture, and, and everything. Wow. I'm tempted. To, I'm going to have to come back to this one. I want to ask, do you have a mechanism for figuring out what people's belief structure is, or do you just let it emerge with time? Um, you can't force people to, to share beliefs, and uh, um, it's also, in some, some cultures, uh, asking the personal questions is actually uh, not done. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I believe is the, the biggest key um, to opening people up is to be it yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So 
no, as I said before, no hidden agenda, open face. You, you also share your personal things, like uh, like uh, being sincere about your shortcomings. And frankly, I find that tends to draw a similar response from whoever you're sharing with. Yeah. This is um, my growing belief about building trust, which is fundamentally what you're talking about here. When there's trust, then people are going to begin to open up. But that trust well, isn't, I, just, I wait for, yeah, go ahead. No, I just want to share something with, the, with you yeah. and the audience as well. There's this great thing about trust, which is, uh, which is basically almost like a formula of mm-hmm. uh, em- empathy and genuine interest. But it's divided. The divisor is actually self-interest that destroys trust like nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Empathy plus divin- de- genuine interest divided by the self-interest. So you drop the self-interest. Okay, the lower the self-interest, the easier the empathy and the genuine interest start to come out. Okay, I like that yeah, formula. It's what we talked about before. The, the the thing is, you if you if you say that you know everything about what there is to know about their business, and, and you're just in a telling mode, uh, that doesn't help. Okay, all right, got it. I believe that trust starts because I grant trust to someone else. It's not that I wait to receive it; I have to initiate it. And that one way of initiating it is to be a bit, not massively, but a bit vulnerable, talking about your weaknesses, your shortcomings, the things that you don't do well, the things that you don't know, any variation of that theme. And typically for other human beings, that encourages them to be a bit reciprocal with you, meaning to open up to you just a bit. And replaying that cycle is what ultimately, I think, builds trust among two people. Yeah, that plus monitor the self-interest. Go ahead. Sorry, one nuance I would like to make is that um, it isn't that you still need to be perceived as strong. You mm-hmm. still need to be have confidence. I mean, you can that you don't know something is not a weakness. It's, but in the end, uh, for for them to see you as someone uh, who they will want to work with or even they want to follow uh, in in his or her lead, um, they need to feel and see and believe also that the confidence and the strength is there. Um, so it's a balance. You know, I mean, it's, you, can, you can also open up and show uh, yourself and, and, and your weaknesses from a position of strength. Right. Right. Which is why this whole notion of how do you keep your confidence up when you're going into a place where you're not at all sure what you're doing is, I think, the challenge. Once you get past that initial hurdle, then it becomes, I think, a little bit easier. Once you find the way that you add value back to the team, that's where you show that you have strength. Okay. All right. So let's go back to something you said earlier that one of your challenges in taking over this team was to build. So it's 13 countries operating somewhat independently, each with all different histories. And how do you get the sense of the team and connecting the dots? So what's the secret to making that work? Or what was the secret in this case to making it work? Um, the challenge here was that they work, of course, in very different markets. They're also in very different cultures. Uh, 
uh, like you often have with bordering countries. Uh, the ones didn't always like the others. Uh, so in, in one country, you couldn't say, uh, well, the, they invented this great thing. Why don't you do the same? Because it will be immediately discounted. Yeah. Um, and I think what con- what connects, you have to find what unites us. And, and, and the thing is, what was here, they were all in the same role, like covering the clients of ING. And I had specific ideas about how I wanted that to be. I didn't want people to be selling stuff. I strongly believe bankers shouldn't be sellers. Um, they are they are there to help a client manage the client's financial risk with whatever is the appropriate product. And if you don't have the product, you point them to someone who has. Um, so what we did is we rolled out two things. Uh, one was uh, a client approach, a certain methodology, which I fundamentally believe in as, as I want to be treated by any supplier mm-hmm. or anybody who's want to sell me something. And the other one was how do, across all these different cultures and languages, how do you create a common, a common language? Um, and how, we, how I tried to create that, and I believe it was successful, is have them do um, all the same training. And it was a specific training on, uh, on mindset, on personal mindset. There was no, it was for them. Um, they, they participated, I think, uh, in the end, I think over 800 people in the entire region went through that training. Um, and this is something focused at empowerment and how do I bring, bring the best out of myself, regardless whether that was private or, or professional, I believe. Uh, if you do the one, it happens also in the other. Um, and, and then... By having that same experience, you also create a, a bit of a common language, uh, other than English, but uh, a bit of a common language. And that combined with also sharing their experience of this client approach was something which started to transcend borders. Okay. So we're back again to a bit of a common goal, even though we're not all literally in it together. We've got a common goal in terms of our client approach, and we've got a shared experience going through this training together, the language that comes from that, the experience of coming through that. Okay? Yeah. And that kind of training is going to make it feel like it's a new day, new opportunities. I'm assuming it left people pretty inspired and excited. Oh, well, unfortunately, um, that there I made a mistake. Um, huh. And what I, what I did is, because I myself think uh, mindset is one of the um, exponential factors in what makes people great. Um, and I was so enthusiastic uh, that I was able to offer all those people the opportunity that I've been ranting about it in my visit. Oh, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And I just created too high expectations. And there were several <laughs> teams who thought it was absolute baloney. Um, they said, well, here, this is like some miracle cure. And, and uh, Mark's, this is going to do wonders. And of course it doesn't. It's, it's something that you take on for yourself and uh, what you do with, with it. Everybody picks up a little bit different items from those trainings. 
But I completely oversold it, and that was a cultural mistake, actually, because mm-hmm. this, again, mm-hmm. comes back from a long history where everything and what you read in the newspaper and was told to you over the radio and television that this was uh, everything was fantastic and uh, glorious uh, when clearly it wasn't. And yeah. I just oversold it. That was a mistake. It, it took a while, and uh, perhaps that w- that's why it took a bit longer. And maybe not everybody took it up, but uh, in the yeah. end, I think uh, it uh, it did trickle through to the majority of that. Great, great. Now, are there other secrets that you use in time to kind of bring the team around and get the team really functioning? Anything else that you've found over all these transitions makes for success? Um, what what I think is what you. Uh, I always, in, in the changes that I've made, I've, I've, I've looked at three three items always, and that's um, the people, and as I said, that's also their culture, DNA, their beliefs, um, uh, what's the, their corporate history, how is how's their, that team been treated in the past, um, then processes, mm-hmm. and do they, do they have the right tools to, to do their okay. job? Uh, mm-hmm. And um, then, as I said, the other factor there is mindset. And if you the right people, um, well, you, you inherit the team that is there. So you have to put the belief and the empowerment in there. And if you know their beliefs, you and you know their pains of the past. That's also something you can address and do different. So they, what they didn't like in the past, or how they would like to be assisted, you can mm-hmm. you can respond. Mm-hmm. And on processes, it's um, that's quite easy. I mean, uh, uh, everybody—I uh, don't know of any company where people will not have some grumble about a process which is not working well. Um, and that's just asking and questioning and, and and looking at it, and then basically taking the easiest to solve with the largest annoyance factor and doing that, and then mm-hmm. pr- then progressing on from there. Taking on perhaps a little less easier, but uh, if you if you the, the smaller step with the bigger impact, uh, if you like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of my favorite CEOs says um, one of the fast ways to gain credibility is to fix stuff. And if you don't know what to fix, ask people. They have a tendency to tell you what it is that isn't working. So you're saying the oh, yeah. same thing. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So presumably, sometimes you have to make a decision to exit someone how quickly do you make that decision in general do you have any sort of guidelines on how do you know if i'm going to keep working at this person and try to bring them around or do i call it quits Boy, that's difficult it's um that was doubly difficult in this role actually because uh they all had their country ceos and their own local hr people and i i this was not a hierarchical a role so um, with those people um, you had to have a much more authority based or, or trust based relationship to discuss these kind of things and also given the fact that you were hardly there I mean with 13 countries if you all want to visit them three times a year um, you're in a plane three times a week um, so there, it was it was difficult I ended up actually more often protecting the team against uh, opinions of the um, 
of a new CEO or, or, and, and really have a discussion on that. But to, to answer your question, because of course there were a couple of instances and one clearly is, 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 is a no-brainer, but that's, uh, that's, uh, um, uh, when people, uh, go against trust or our company values, I mean, then, then, then there's no, no discussion. Um, but, uh, I always tend to categorize it in two things. Um, if people can't, it's a manager's to do because either that person needs to be trained or is just in a wrong role. And then it's your job to see if you can put that person to better use for the company. After all, it's someone who's, who's putting in the sweat and tears into the company and, and we as well have invested in that person. Um, if a person won't, then I have a problem. And if I can't see them, make them see why uh, if they don't want to do something, they should move out themselves because together we're not going to be happy for long. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that one. If the person can't, it's the managers to do, either to train them or to get them into a different role where they're more suited. If they won't, then it's a matter of either changing mindset, getting them to understand that it's a not a good fit or, you know, it's a parting of company. Okay, Mark, we're going to take a break again. Um, I think the thing that's fascinating about this one is it's just so consistent with what I hear from so many leaders trying to come in and take over a team, particularly when the team has a lot of expertise that you don't have. And if I pull out the elements of this, there's a lot of work that you've done on the upfront to make yourself available and known to the team, to have some curiosity about their culture, about their processes, about their business, about their clients. Um, and I love the fact that you had them send you a book so you learn about the culture. I think that's fabulous. And then it's a matter of creating a common approach, a new client approach, and a common experience through a common language around the mindset so that there is more glue that holds them together, both the experience, the new approach, and the um, language of the mindset. And that that begins to build the DNA of the team where they start to to open up to each other, trust each other, talk to each other. And then from there, it's a matter of making sure that you're fixing the processes. And I love what you said is take the easiest to solve with the largest annoyance factor first. Um, and lastly, you know, the last thing that you do is to exit people from the business. You try a lot of things first before you really say, I've got to change the team. Fascinating, Mark. I enjoy it. Love it. So with me today is Mark Milders. Mark is currently the head, I'm going to miss the title here, the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria for ING Bank. And we have been talking about Mark's transition from going from one completely different area of finance into a totally different area with 13 different countries and how you make that out of the comfort zone experience really work and function and survive and deliver great value for the business. When we come back, I want to talk about that ever elusive topic of politics and influence and get Mark's advice on how you navigate that. We'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. 
If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Your entrepreneurial vision has taken hold. Your business is growing. It's everything you hoped for. Or is it? With growth comes bigger headaches, more hiring, more capital, more customers to satisfy, more employees to manage, more plates to juggle, and more demands on your time. Get off that merry-go-round now. Tune in to The Business Edge with Marsha Zeidel. You'll meet street-smart entrepreneurs and business leaders sharing their success stories as well as practical solutions to the unique challenges faced by growing companies. Heard every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Mark Milders. Mark is currently the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria for ING Bank. Um, We've been talking about one of Mark's major transitions in his corporate experience, and that was a move way out of the comfort zone to 13 countries, most of whom he'd never visited before, to a team that knew a lot more details and didn't necessarily want to work together, and then to build the success out of that. And how do you build the team and how do you how do you make it work? Um, And I think sort of all through all of this, there's this notion of building the constantly building the trust, showing a bit of vulnerability, having confidence in where you're going, giving some common experiences and common language to the team and just keeping the conversations going with each individual person so that they feel that they can truly ultimately do their best. That's a short summary for what's been a lot richer discussion. Okay, so now, Mark, I want to talk about influence in politics. And let me say a little bit of upfront about this one. When I say the word politics, everybody wants to say, oh, you try to take the politics out of it. And I agree that we don't want to be political. We don't want to act in a political, self-serving manner. That isn't helpful. And as you said at the beginning, self-interest is going to kill trust completely. Okay, so I don't mean that. What I mean is politics in that they exist There are people trying to influence each other to do different things, and it's a matter of how do you have great the influence you want to have and the success you want to have when everybody's trying to influence for some other agenda. 
not necessarily a personal agenda. So, Mark, I'm interested. What's your advice on how to handle this influence in politics? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll approach it from the angle that assuming that you want to achieve something. Um, yeah. And um, then it's also if you have a certain want or need or you want to get something done, um, there's always there's a groups of people that are either the decision makers and you have the influencers. Um, and you know who they are. I mean, they all act like they're the decision makers, but you know who's really calling the shot. Um, so it always be interested in those people um, and also be sure how they tick. You've got the, I think it's a classical, uh, the classical uh, profile it's not that binary but you got the driver the analytic the amiable and the expressive um and those are certain they have preferences on how they want to be approached and how they want to be taken along um on the journey so a driver wants a short raw hard facts and at, at best two options to decide and will take the decision and not ask a lot of questions um, mm-hmm. Of course, you have to make sure that both options actually still fit your plan, but that's, uh, you can work on that. The analytical wants to have the exact and the logic and, and, and all the all the data, uh, more data, more data. So if you want if you want to convince that way or that person takes that way, um, the amiable is someone who you include, who is uh, who is basically always very able to cooperate with people like that. You can you can do a brainstorm and you can arrive at your solution uh, together. And there's a big willingness to do that. It's uh, it's usually friendly. And then you've got the expressive, who's more uh, like stories, uh, who has to see the vision. Um, but there's one cycle of argumentation which I think is is, is very important if you with any of. Uh, the types of people you want to influence, um, or whether you want to, to to them to buy into your vision or idea, mm-hmm. and that is you, you make the proposition, you explain the what, and immediately, almost every human being will think, "What's in it for me?" It's like a basic response to someone asking uh, in a business environment, okay, you want me to give you something, what's in it for me? Um, and then you move to explaining what the benefits would be for that person of your idea. Once you've done that, you have to evidence the benefits because, I mean, you can, you can say uh, that someone will wake up smiling every morning, but you're going to have to prove that. And this is where a lot of the uh, influencing or convincing goes wrong, because what a lot of people do, they provide evidence for their idea. Uh, and that person is not really interested in that. He, re- he or she really wants to know and feel, okay, but if I, if I do that, if I go along, what is the benefit for me or what's in it for me? And then finally, you have to, of course, have a sense of, whether the timing of your proposal, how that would fit in another person's agenda. And that's sometimes the harder part uh, to find out, but that's asking questions and going back. And sometimes uh, it's another strategy of influencing. You, you use Chinese torture, which is like drip, drip, 
having the patience to take uh, maybe even a year to get to your goal. I love that one. I've seen that. In fact, I've seen people take two years to get where they wanted to go. Um, not because it was a market condition that you had to drive it immediately, but because it was more of a personal agenda and it, patience is part of it. All right. I like this. I like, I want to just repeat this. The driver wants the facts and two options and they'll make a decision quickly. The yeah. analytic wants the exact details, the logic, the data, plus more data, plus more data. The amiable wants to be included. So the brainstorming, the cooperative, the joint solution, the creative problem solving. And the expressive likes the stories and the visions. Where is it going and why are we going and what does this look like? I like those four great classifications. And then you have a cycle of argumentation to get buy-in. You make the proposition, you explain what. Not the facts of why, but the what. And then you explain the benefits to that person, what's in it for you as an individual or for your team, presumably. And then I've got to show you that you're going to really get that. And then i got to make sure my timing is right, because the timing can be wrong based on other agenda. Yeah. Patience. You have, to be pretty, you have to be pretty sure and have a genuine interest, again, in, in the people to, to find out what, what type they are. I mean, nobody's wearing a T-shirt. Uh, say not the driver, um, but if you get that wrong, you lose that person the moment you walk in. So if you walk into a driver and ask him how was your holiday, um, you're, that's not going to work very well. If you chit chat uh, with that, or if you come to an analytical person and say, "Well, I, I just feel it will be okay," um, that's also not going to land very well. So, and again. And that probably goes through anything you do in management. It has to be a genuine interest in people. Um, and then also um, the convincing part uh, and knowing their beliefs. Again, coming back to the iceberg, if you, if you spend time in preparing and spend time understanding where that person is coming from, because um, someone can be smiling at you, but it's belief can belief can be that will never work because of past experience, if you like. You have okay. to spend time and you have to invest in understanding where someone is coming from. And also, in order to answer the question, what's in it for you, you need to do that effort. Yeah, I think that's the secret, that if you really understand where the person's coming from, that's how you know what it is that's going to be um, in it for them. Great. Mark? Fabulous show. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I think I could ask 10 more questions here. So with me again today is Mark Milders. He's the head of coverage and markets in Germany and Austria. And we've been talking about Mark's transition into Central and Eastern European Europe from a completely different place in his career. Mark, I think the thing that's most exciting to me about this one is what you said at the very end that at, you know, we can give all the mechanics, but in it is ultimately down to a genuine interest in people and spending the time to understand what is driving that person. What are their beliefs? What are their styles? And how am I going to tell you what's in it for you in a way that makes sense? So, Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Wanda. It was a pleasure. All right. And then next week, we're going to continue this conversation by talking with Alan Cohen, who's a specialist on influence without authority. So join us then. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. 
Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.